Hi there. Welcome to Journey On. I'm Dave Smelser. So as I record this, I believe we Californians are entering month number two of shelter at home. How's it going on your end? Our experience here has been that it's gone in waves. So week one was full of stress and anxiety about what it all might mean. Then many of us settled in and, you know, even saw some positive things in the midst of the craziness. So my wife Grace and I are praying together more, which we'd never been great at pulling off. And it has been bonding and centering. Some of our kids have been a little less stressed than before. That seems good. I've discovered Robert B. Parker's Spencer detective novels and where had they been all my life. And then by this point, with, of course, many ups and downs of stress and de-stressing, the next wave many of my friends are describing is weariness. Will this never end? So wherever you and yours are in that spectrum, God bless you and yours. We in the Journey On crowd are with you. This week, perhaps in that spirit, we'll talk about what strikes me as some of the deepest wisdom we've talked about yet on the podcast, which is that you and I were made to experience great stuff, daily enthusiasm, joy, and love for starters. But these great spiritual teachers have a profound explanation for why we can have such a difficult time accessing these encouraging things, not least in stressful times like we're going through now, but frankly at all times. But they suggest that with a few simple choices, experiencing this enthusiasm, joy, and love turns out to be a whole lot easier than we thought, even in times like we're going through. The kicker comes from how we anticipate and experience possible suffering. Jesus teaching us about death and resurrection is all over this point. Evidently, All the power here boils down to who the actual you is, kind of a deep question. The great spiritual teachers, taking their lead from the Bible, have all sorts of practical things to teach us about how once we settle into the right answer on that real you thing, the rest is easy street. It's pretty great stuff. Before I launch in, let me mention, as I do each week, that I help lead some pretty delightful, encouraging online groups along these lines that perhaps you would enjoy checking out. We have one on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and another on Sunday nights at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You'll have a chance to connect with great, light-minded people from around the country and beyond. For information about how to get connected, email mail at blueoceanfaith.org. Mail, M-A-I-L, at blueoceanfaith.org. Okay, kick us off, Ryan Hood, for The Remarkable Link Between Suffering and Enthusiasm. The promise of the journeying spirituality we talk about here includes an important paradox that, like all paradoxes, is tough to tease out. So these spiritual masters make a big point that our best tutor into the kind of spirituality that God has in mind for you and me is a daily experience of enthusiasm, joy, and love, whatever the outward circumstances of our lives, a global pandemic that brings economic threats with it, for instance. So we're encouraged to believe for a life that's pervasively filled with this stuff, this enthusiasm, joy, and love which can feel like a prescription for a bunch of bad stuff. It could be a prescription for, for instance, denial. Lots of spirituality is rightly criticized for encouraging us to live behind a false front. Or it could encourage us to a fundamental superficiality, as if only focusing on happy things would lead us away from the real depth of what life is about. And these criticisms take us right to the other side of the paradox. These great thinkers are also really into us walking into Jesus' experience on the cross, and how that led to resurrection for him and for us. So they focus on suffering. It's a key road to everything good. Of course, you can't summarize all of their teaching under one verse from the Bible. But if you could, you could do worse than summarize it under Luke 9.23. Whoever wants to be my disciple, says Jesus, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. 
So for all their focus on daily enthusiasm, joy, and love, they sure pick a gloomy central organizing principle. Today, we're going to try to get right to the heart of that with some stories and pictures from the Bible and practical advice for these great teachers. Let me foreshadow some of this with a quick anecdote from my shelter at home week. Like everyone, my emotions and faith has had its ups and downs in this unprecedented current reality. I've had stretches where I'm able to put aside the circumstances that are entirely out of my control and focus on what is in my control and lean into my faith in a good God. And so I have days which have gone just great, even with all the uncertainty. And then I've had other days where I've done considerably worse than that, where I feel anxious or just in kind of a malaise that I devote a lot of, I'm sure, unconscious energy during the day to trying to shove down the bad feelings. So doing my best to be a good contemplative and mindfulness person, where I notice and welcome whatever reality I'm in, I noticed this malaise the other day, and I wish I could feel a little better emotionally. So what might be my options by which I could get that perspective? Well, I've got lots of clubs in my golf bag, as it were, that I could try. I can, as we've talked about in this podcast, praise God for my circumstances no matter what. I'm all over that. Sometimes when I do that, it helps a lot. And other times, it might be worthy nonetheless, but I don't feel better. And that was true here. I liked having done it, but I didn't feel better. So other clubs, I can pull out a Pentecostal club from my metaphorical golf bag and can guess that some of the crumminess I'm feeling likely has a spiritual root. And I can try to cast that spirit out to take spiritual authority over it. I'm in, if that can work. In this case, again, while I'm sure it was worthy for its own sake, I didn't feel better. Or I can pull a contemplative mindful club out of my metaphorical golf bag, as I clearly did, and can hope that just shining attention on those emotions and thoughts can diminish them in and of itself. Because I'm no longer wasting all that energy in my unconscious as I try to shove those difficult emotions down. But then there's one final move which perhaps goes to the heart of things even more than any of these, though it's related to all of them, that I'm going to talk about today. So it's interesting to think about this paradox of daily joy, enthusiasm, and love that gets married to an open-hearted embrace of suffering when we look at what Christians call Holy Week, the week leading up to Easter, which gets something like a third of the word count in the gospel stories. It's on my mind because I'm recording this just after Easter. So Holy Week starts with Palm Sunday the day where we're told Jesus triumphantly enters the holy city of Jerusalem. Everyone except his enemies is so excited. His followers feel like they will never be unhappy again because they've banked everything on this guy. And now the whole world is acknowledging they backed the right horse, as it were. Other people of Israel are also so excited because it seems like this Jesus guy will overthrow their Roman oppressors. Only Jesus' open enemies are grinding their teeth because it appears they've conclusively lost. But after all this ebullience, Jesus then immediately tries to tell his followers not to get too high because it's all going to turn bad by a week's end. And he forecasts that he'll be killed soon. And he offers metaphors like, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains just one grain of wheat. But if it dies, it produces a lot of grain. And he suggests not only that he'll be that grain under discussion, but so will anyone else who wants to follow him. That's, a, that's kind of a gloomy thing to suggest on a day in which it seemed like anyone who'd hitched their star to him would never have a bad day for the rest of their lives. And then if Palm Sunday represents a day that suggests there will never be another bad day, Good Friday, the day in which Jesus is crucified, suggests there will never be another good day. On Good Friday, it's all collapse and everything is terrible and hopeless and depressing. But then we get Easter, where Jesus rises from the dead. Now, it might be tempting to think this means that the Palm Sunday side of things has won. It was right all along. There will never be another bad day because of the resurrection power of God. But interestingly, 
That is not the role of the Easter story. Instead, it's a whole new thing that comes after Jesus has, in fact, gone into the ground like that grain of wheat and died, and then on Easter, been resurrected out of the ground into this great crop, as it were. As if this Easter stuff is offered to all of us as a promise, if we follow him right down into the earth ourselves. Let me, perhaps circling the subject for just a few moments, talk about what these spiritual dynamics look like to these spiritual teachers and how they think this can lead you and me into a life of consistent enthusiasm, joy, and love. Let's start by thinking about our swirl of thoughts when we're anxious or stressed. Mystics say this swirl is unhelpful, but we keep it because it falsely makes us feel as though we have some control over uncontrollable aspects of our lives. Our chattering thoughts always have to have a problem, as if if we just solve this one, they tell us, there will never be another problem, but of course there will be another immediately afterwards. Internally bracing yourself, hoping something bad won't happen, as with the events of Holy Week or perhaps a world pandemic, won't prevent anything from actually happening. But journeying with God through Holy Week turns out to be sort of amazing. So why do we resist reality, however unpleasant? Well, let's say hypothetically, if your best friend moves away, you know they've already moved away, however you internally resist it. So we're encouraged to let your emotions about that pass through you, to stay open. Or perhaps your inner tumult will say, I don't like what that person said to me. Fix it, thoughts and emotions. But you know that thing has already been said and our emotions cannot fix it. But we swirl and fulminate because it feels like there's some control as we do. The great spiritual teachers point to a fascinating theme in the Bible about exactly this. They point out that what Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 calls your inner man or woman is in fact the you that is behind your thoughts or emotions. And that's where God is with you. It's the real you. The great teachers call this the watcher within you. And it turns out that this watcher, this inner man or woman, again, is the actual you. That you are not the swirl of your thoughts or fears or emotions as much as they cry out that that is your real reality. You're the watcher that notices all that tumult. And we're told there's a whole lot of power in getting in touch with this inner you. So just a little run through of some scriptures on this. Proverbs 23 verse 7 reiterates that the inner man or woman is who you actually are. Psalm 51 6 says this inner man or woman is your deepest, truest self. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says this inner man or woman is being renewed every single day. There's energy there, whatever's happening in your outer world. Romans 7.22 says that by contrast to your outer tumult, this inner man or woman, by definition, loves God's law. This inner you isn't conflicted the way your swirl of thoughts or emotions are. 1 Samuel 16.7 says, this is the you that God knows. Proverbs 20 verse 27 says this inner man or woman is the place where God guides you. This inner man or woman with God, the actual you, the watcher, knows to relax and release because in most situations, there's nothing to deal with except for our own fears and desires. Spiritual growth, which Jesus calls becoming like a child, then becomes transcending your self-protective self and journeying with God. By contrast, being worldly, the bad thing in the Bible, turns out not so much to be liking money or status or sex or other things we religious people might call worldly. It's more believing that the solution to our problems is in the outer world. If we consistently try to rearrange our outer world in order to feel safe, it's going to come to seem like life itself is against us. Getting that promotion, however lovely aspects of that might be, will not actually give us a lasting sense of financial security. If you're afraid or whatever, 
rather than running with or trying to battle your swirl of fearful thoughts. Instead, you might take the Bible's counsel and go to your inner man or woman and ask, what part of you is afraid? You don't engage with your fearful thoughts because, again, your thoughts have always been a self-protective device. One mystic says that engaging with your swirl of thoughts is arguing with a maniac. It says if a friend came and told you the stuff that your swirl of inner thoughts is telling you, you would never go to them for advice. So instead, you release your mind from the task of fixing your inner problems. You take them off, take it off the job. Instead, you let all that swirl go. Your mind's function, we're told by these people, is to drive you crazy over nothing. Relaxing and releasing is the road out. Now, among the things you gain by doing this is energy. It's exhausting to battle your swirl of thoughts or to try to tamp them down, to not be too unruly. So in an earlier couple of lockdown days, I felt not only burdened, but also less productive, which added to my burdens because I tried to drive myself to be more productive. Then I realized I hadn't relaxed and released the burdens I could spot from that watcher inner man space in me. And I did that to great effect. I let it go. My next several days were notably enthusiastic and productive. Energy is a key gift we're given with this view of the world. So if a key to a joyful, enthusiastic, loving life is from that inner man or woman relaxing and opening our hearts, these paradoxical mystics tell us that the way to stay open in our hearts is by never closing. Again, they insist that the only thing you really want in your life is to feel enthusiasm, joy, and love. As if, if you continue to have those things, who cares what happens in the outside world if you continue to feel enthusiasm, joy, and love? Now, we're also told that enthusiasm, joy, and love is setting you up to do well even if bad things do happen. That you'll be more um, reflective, conscious, centered, empowered, energetic, and able to attack and face your actual life challenges than if you've been battling in, your, in all your self-protective swirl of thoughts along the way. You'll do better by letting those self-protective thoughts and emotions go. Now, on this theory, when you're not feeling joyful, you're doing, you are doing something wrong. Here's what you're doing. You're holding on to something that's blocking your joy, as if joy is your natural state of being. They tell us if lots of things like this build up, we store lots of darkness and negativity in our spirits. And it's hard for the wind of the Holy Spirit to blow freely in us. It's like, you know, have you ever gone into a dank, dark, stagnant room and you open up all the curtains to let some light in, you open up all the windows, let some air in. That's what we're encouraged to do in our hearts, in our spirits in this way. So let's say you get into a rhythm of doing just great at this. You regularly get still. You go to that you behind your swirl of thoughts and emotions, the true you, the watcher, the inner man and woman where God lives, as the Bible tells it. And you open up. You relax your heart. You forgive. You laugh. You let go. You keep your heart open and keep the energy flowing. Here's the trick they tell us. You're going to discover that the trick is disciplining your heart so that it doesn't convince you that this time it's worth closing. This provocation is the one that should shut us down. You're going to learn in this that your happiness isn't conditional on the behavior of other people. In our current unpredictable, overwhelming circumstance, openness might look like, gee, I wonder what will happen next and how God and I are going to walk into that. Again, consider the ups and downs of Holy Week. Palm Sunday, right, seemed to kick off this great new era, and Good Friday seemed to kick off a desolate new era. There was nothing our swirl of thoughts or emotions could do to prevent that. But just taking the journey where it went and being present to it from our inner man or woman, our watcher, letting our thoughts and feelings go on the way, and then entering into that experience seems to be the power. Again, we get blocked because it feels like we're protecting ourselves against pain. 
But that false sense of control and protection is sort of like an unremoved thorn in our foot. That unremoved thorn can become an organizing principle, like a vicious cycle. So if we don't pull the thorn out, in this case, by watching, relaxing, releasing, then our whole lives are spent making sure we don't step down on that foot. If we haven't released the pain of, say, wanting to be married but it not happening, we might quit going places where we're going to see couples, which will press on that thorn. Or if we haven't released the pain of feeling financial fear, it might be hard to pay bills each month or to look honestly at our finances. Relaxing and releasing is the road to energy and freedom, we're told. It's, the, it's giving us the fun of seeing us what comes, uh, of us being able to see what comes next. It's remarkable how non-self-protective Jesus was about the intense suffering he knew he was going to experience. While he, in the end, had to definitively win this battle in the Garden of Gethsemane on exactly these terms, it doesn't seem like he spent the months before his crucifixion battling his fearful swirl of thoughts or emotions. So when Good Friday came, he intensely suffered, not having been self-protective leading up to it. But then that was it. And then God, his Father, resurrected him. We're encouraged in this endeavor to start with small things, not with the hardest thing in our life, but in the present moment, we mostly have small things. So back in normal life, when this whole lockdown thing is over, you're in a car again. Wouldn't that be a lovely thing? And you're driving somewhere. And as you drive somewhere, someone honks at you. We're told, okay, at that moment, relax your shoulders and your heart and let the emotions pass through you and be gone as you move into the next moment, rather than holding on that, you know, because somebody honked at me and I'm not wrong, they're wrong. Wow, they're so impatient. Or they're just so, you know, maybe I did something small that was annoying to them, but they are just so mean and unforgiving. Come on, they've had to make a turn under these circumstances too. We get that swirl of justification and anger and frustration. Even the sound of the horn goes into us. So we're given the opportunity then to hold on to it and we can tell the next person we see what a horrible thing happened to us. Or right then we take that as a trigger, again, to relax your shoulders, to feel the tension going out of your shoulders to kind of relax your heart, whatever that means, to open up even your chest and to take a breath and to let it go and move into the next moment. You don't want to fight your thoughts or emotions. Fighting is engaging with their melodrama. Instead, you make a game of relaxing and releasing. Your thoughts and emotions aren't you again. You're the inner man or woman, the one who's watching with God. Negative thoughts and feelings are always going to be with you. And in this mystic's view of the world are no problem at all. This turned out to be the way forward with the malaise I mentioned earlier. This is the punchline I never quite got to. So I realized, again, as I mentioned, being someone who's trying to be contemplative, that I could just observe how I was feeling, like I could be mindful. If I could let those feelings go, great. But even if not, it was no problem, having observed them, to move forward into my day with energy. In my swirl, feelings like the malaise I was feeling are a problem that needs to be solved because I don't want to feel them. And so my unconscious goes to work overtime to stuff them down. I don't want to feel that way. I want to feel better. I want to feel whatever, all that energy. In my inner man with God, watcher, me, self, those problems, those feelings are not a problem at all. Of course, observing them, on occasion, I'm going to have up and down emotions. I'm a human being. I don't need to stop anything. They're free to come. From the inner man with God, I just note them. And I move into whatever I need to be doing next, and all my energy and anticipation returns to me. When we haven't relaxed and released, we can feel a need to get rid of all that pent-up energy by venting at someone we love, or maybe even abruptly quitting an otherwise good job, all of which reinforces the things that are blocking us, that creates a destructive cycle. Unless the person you've vented towards is remarkably good at living in their inner man or woman and relaxing and releasing, 
they're going to take in all that negative energy you've thrown their way, and they're going to throw it right back at you. As Jesus said, if you judge, you'll discover you get judged. Let's say you make a mistake. You mess up. You wish you regret something you did. You wish you hadn't blown it in some fashion at some point. In this view, the moment you think, I messed up, here's the advice. Just get up, relax and release, resolve the situation as best you can, and you're done. Here's what you're not supposed to do. When you feel like, oh, I messed up, you don't try to rationalize, blame, or perhaps even figure out what happened, which is sort of crazy, right? Don't you need to do a postmortem? How did I make this mistake? They're saying, no, that actually feeds that. It's like talking to the maniac. That's feeding the swirl of emotions. Don't feed it. Just get up, relax, release whatever you're feeling, and move forward. They say on this front, when you feel shame, just relax your shoulders and your heart. Don't engage the shame, right? You're not trying to talk back to the shame. Notice it and let it go. Now, it can feel this is such a countercultural way to live, isn't it? Who does this? And the Bible anticipates this is countercultural. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross, in this sense, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's all the energy. It's resurrection power. People who, on these terms, are, quote, perishing, think that they are the swirl of their thoughts and emotions. To people living according to frantic self-protection— releasing all of that stuff in trust that while suffering is inevitable, resurrection by faith is also promised. Childlike faith seems unfathomable, but the cross empowers us to go to our inner man and woman because it offers us the power of the resurrection. We so don't want to suffer that we build up wall after swirling wall of self-protection. But what we come to realize is that our inner self-protective swirl both doesn't actually protect us from anything, but that the swirl itself is a form of suffering. All those emotions we're trying to stuff down are suffering, is burden, it is fear, it's anger. It turns out that the swirl is what the Bible has this big term for. The Bible calls this swirl our sin nature. And the cost of not going quickly to our inner man or woman, where God lives with us and who we actually are, is that we cut ourselves off from the energetic, joyful life we've been created to enjoy. As the disciples discovered during Holy Week, you can't protect yourself from some suffering. It's coming, no matter what your swirl of thoughts or emotions might be. But like a grain of wheat, you can unguardedly follow Jesus into the earth and discover that God the Father is going to resurrect you, that you are actually a child of promise. And part of that promise, again, is that you are made for daily enthusiasm, joy, and love. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. It was great. I'll see you next time.